Hey there, listeners. This is Jasmine Aguilera, head of audio at the LA Times. Thank you so much for following and listening to LA Times podcasts, like Asian Enough. You'll still be able to find Asian Enough on your favorite podcast platforms, but starting April 11th, you're going to see a new show popping up in your feed. It's called Foretold. Foretold follows the story of Paulina Stevens, a Romani woman who was raised with the assumption that she would leave school, marry young, and become a fortune teller. Her fate seemed pretty certain until she decided to leave it all behind. With Paulina's story as a starting point, Foretold will take you past the neon psychic signs and trendy tarot cards to unravel myths and stereotypes that have followed the Romani people for centuries. If you follow Asian enough, you already follow Foretold. Be among the first to hear episode one on April 11th and keep following for new episodes every Tuesday. Can a fortune teller change your fate? Find out on Foretold, a new podcast from the LA Times. From the LA Times, this is Asian Enough. Each week on this podcast, we talk to one Asian American celebrity about the joys, the complications, and everything else that comes along with being Asian American. I'm Frank Shaw. And I'm Jen Yamato. This week, it's episode 17 of our podcast, the final episode of our first season. Those are wild words to say out loud. And we're joined by CBS White House correspondent Weijia Zhang. She'll tell us about what it's like in the White House briefing room. Here's Weijia asking a question of Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany last month. Okay, I have a question of my own. Last July, President Trump declared himself the least racist person there is anywhere in the world. Why does he use racist phrases like the Kung Flu? Well, the president doesn't. What the president does do is point to the fact that the origin of the virus is China. It's a fair thing to point out as China tries to ridiculously rewrite history, ridiculously blame the coronavirus on American soldiers. This is what China's trying to do. And what President Trump is saying, no, China, I will label this virus for its place of origin. That's what he's saying by using the racist phrase, Kung Flu. He is linking it to its place of origin. What does he have to say to uh, Asian Americans who are deeply offended and worried that his use will lead to further attacks of discrimination? So the president has said very clearly, it's important that we totally protect our Asian community in the U.S. and all around the world. They're amazing people and the spreading of the virus is not their fault in any way, shape, or form. They're working closely with us to get rid of it. We will prevail together. It's very important. So it's not a discussion about Asian Americans, who the president values and prizes as citizens of this great country. It is an indictment of China for letting this virus get here. And I would also point out that the media blames President Trump for using the terms China virus and Wuhan virus when they themselves have used these very terms. The New York Times called it the Chinese coronavirus virus, Reuters, the Chinese virus, CNN, the Chinese coronavirus on January 20th, Washington Post, January 21st, Chinese coronavirus, and I have more than a dozen other examples. Separate category, Kaylee. Kung flu is extremely offensive to many people in the Asian American community. To be clear, are you saying the White House does not believe it is racist? To be clear, I Weijia think will also talk to us about growing up in West Virginia and how standing up to bullies as a child prepared her for journalism. Let's get started. Asian Enough is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Hello Tushy. Did you know it takes 37 gallons of water to make one roll of toilet paper? Make a difference with Hello Tushy Modern Bidet Attachment. This advertiser has no influence over editorial decisions or content.
thank you so much for joining us. This is actually going to be our final episode, so it's really, really great. We're really excited to have you on, and we thank you for taking the time. I'm going to actually start by saying you are a White House correspondent. You're also a mom. You have this crazy busy schedule. We had to even reschedule this recording (laughs) at least once because of a, a briefing came up at the last minute. What sense can you give us of what your actual life is like? What is your <laughs> schedule like? What is the life of a White House correspondent? And how do you deal with it all? Well, it is really busy, obviously, just because of the the rate at which stories are breaking and developing. And I don't have anything to compare it to because I didn't cover a previous administration in the same capacity And so this is my normal. And even before the pandemic, even before the protests unfolded across the country after George Floyd was killed, it was really a chaotic atmosphere just because uh, you never knew what was going to happen in any given day. You know, those two things added on to the already busy schedule has really changed our day-to-day, just because we're also living through the pandemic. And, you know, all that to say, though, like I said, this is what I've known since I started covering President Trump. And so I've sort of adapted to how hectic a day can be. And, And I guess in some ways, you know, the pace of my day feels normal by now. You just adjust. And, you know, I am a working mom. And, I, you know, I think that all working moms can relate that we never have enough time for anything. But we somehow, that said, find the time and the moments to squeeze everything in that we have to do. So I find it's pretty thrilling to juggle so many things. Um, I get bored really easily and I don't have to worry about that these days. (laughs) Yeah, I heard in an earlier interview, you start your day at 4 a.m. Like, You really are a hardworking journalist. And as a journalist who doesn't work that hard, it's uh, it's incredible to hear. I'm sure that's not true. But um, thank you for saying that. You know, it's just because if we're doing the morning show, which starts at 7, there are so many things that break overnight. Um, and obviously, we have to make sure we have the best information, the newest information for our viewers. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's never ending. I um, want to turn to a different subject. I can't imagine what it was like being an on-camera correspondent and reporting on coronavirus during a time when people are just casually associating Asian faces and ethnicities with the virus. You know, Tell us, what was on your mind in February and March when these reports of harassment and violence were coming to light? And did you ever worry that being Chinese-American would make you a target, like especially being you know, such a public face? Um, What was on my mind was my parents, actually, because I was hearing about the discrimination against members of the Asian American community. I was hearing about elderly people being harassed and targeted and shouted at. And I could just easily imagine that happening to my family members. And that was really... um, hard because I knew it wasn't just me. I knew everybody who looked like me in this country was sort of grappling with the same thing and wondering, how is this going to impact my personal life? For me, it was that 
while balancing covering the story, obviously, because at that time we knew so little and I knew everyone, no matter their ethnicity, was desperate for information about what was happening and what they could do to protect themselves and how the virus was spreading. Was there anything we could do to stop it? And so there were so many layers to this story that I quickly realized they, they can't be separated, especially in the Asian American community. In fact, one of my first stories I ever did on COVID-19 was not about the medical part. It was about a growing number of attacks. I went to New York City actually to cover, to cover it because even in a city like New York, which is, a, you know, supposed to be most representative of, you know, what this country is in terms of the mosaic, even there, people were experiencing a lot of discrimination. And so I felt it was really important early on to tell that story and to make people aware so that the behavior was not normalized. And of course, that piece of it has evolved. And I, I, I unfortunately can't say it's gotten better because I know there are different coalitions and groups that are tracking and aggregating the number of attacks on people and they continue to rise. And so it is concerning. And I think that we can't stop reporting on um, these incidents because again, that makes them seem normal, whether they're verbal attacks or physical attacks, um, we have to continue to bring them to light. Right. We we did see that segment of yours. It was really powerful because you're sitting down with the restaurant owner in Chinatown asking him what his experience is in the moment as this is happening all around the country. How has coronavirus impacted your business? Tremendous. Ken Lam's family has owned a popular New York City dim sum restaurant for more than four decades. You've been through SARS, you've been through swine flu. Yes. Is coronavirus different when it comes to business? Yes. And then when you talk about swine flu and H1N1, we didn't feel anything at all. We often ask some of our guests this question, what is it like to be Asian at your job? This thought that you can't divorce who you are from the work that you do sometimes as a journalist. And I think in your case, that's especially powerful knowing that your parents ran a restaurant, knowing that you are one of the only Asian-American faces mm -hmm. uh, in the White House press corps that we see on our TVs. When Trump is using racist terms like Kung flu and the Chinese virus, how do you feel about being in that position like as you are? reporting on this? And then how do you respond as a journalist uh, when you're at a, a press conference, for example, to decide to use what may be your only question mm -hmm. for the day to confront the White House or the administration about the president's use of these terms? I think we're in a moment in our country where we're really thinking about who we are and not only as a country, but individually. For me, I've done a lot of reflecting about that because Early on in my career as a journalist, I was so worried about maintaining objectivity to a degree that I almost leaned away from who I was. And I was self-conscious that people would think I was only hired because I was Asian American and I looked a certain way. And I think more and more I realized that, you know, we have to really lean in to who we are because that shapes 
the job that we do as a journalist. That's why we have diversity in the newsroom. It's not so we have a newsroom full of people who look different from each other. It's because every single person brings a different perspective. And because of our personal experiences, we see things differently and we experience things differently. And so I think, you know, it's impossible to be an objective person, but that doesn't mean we can't be fair and balanced. And so when I am asking questions about race, I have to also wonder, is this something that you know, will help the conversation for the country to move forward, not just the Asian community, but, you know, all Americans who are having these really tough moments with themselves and with each other about who we are. And so I think, you know, being able to appreciate who I am and where I came from and who I represent allows me to have that perspective when I hear things um, that are racist, to be able to question them. You bring up a really good point that there are times when you only have one question and you have to really think about what is the focus of the day? What are people at home most worried about? And in fact, I think a prime example happened last week when the president had made a few very confusing remarks about asking, quote, his people to slow down testing um, because it made him look bad. And the White House multiple times had said um, that he was joking and he was just kidding. And that was clear. And so the reason why that clarity is so important is because testing is such an important tool. And there are still many communities in the country that don't have enough testing. And that's one of the main ways you can track and contain uh, the virus. So people stop getting sick. And so that's why it's so important to drill down on what the president did to, to, to slow it down or to speed it up and to understand that. So uh, I remember I was out on the South Lawn of the White House. He was leaving for an event and that's when the chopper is going and it's really loud and you really only have one shot to ask him a question because of the environment that's so tricky. And he hadn't been asked about Kung Flu yet. I really had to think about, am I going to ask him about using this racist phrase or am I going to ask him about testing? And in the end, I asked him, you know, when you asked your people to slow down testing, were you joking? And he said, I don't kid. And that was really revealing because he had basically contradicted everything that the White House was saying. He also offered us a glimpse into, you know, the fact that when he said he was asking his team to slow down testing, he was serious. And so that was really important for the whole country, I, I felt, to understand you know, whether or not he took steps to make himself look better with regard to, you know, the number of coronavirus cases. Now, afterward, did I think about, you know, whether or not that was the right decision? Always. I always have a debrief with myself and, and think, should I have asked this? Should I have framed the question differently? Because, you know, if we're not always questioning ourselves, we're not going to make progress for the next time I get a chance to ask a question. 
have a tush, then this ad is for you. It's hard to believe that when we go to the bathroom in this country, most of us wipe instead of wash. The Hello Tushy Modern Bidet Attachment is here to democratize the blessings bestowed by bidets and offer clean bottoms to everyone. It attaches to your existing toilet, requires no electricity or additional plumbing, and cuts toilet paper use by 80%. So the Hello Tushy bidet pays for itself in a few months. Because with Hello Tushy, you don't wipe at all. Even the best two-ply just can't cut it when it comes to a hands-free bathroom experience. Join millions of happy Hello Tushy customers right now and have a clean bottom with every flush. Go to hellotushy.com enough to get 10% off. This is a special offer for our listeners. Go to hellotushy.com enough for 10% off. hellotushy.com enough. I want to zoom in on one of those incidents you kind of talked about um, on May 11th in response to your question about why there was an emphasis on competitively comparing U.S. coronavirus testing with other countries. Trump responded, don't ask me, ask China that question. You said many times that the U.S. is doing far better than any other country when it comes to testing. Yes. Why does that matter? Why is this a global competition to you if everyday Americans are still losing their lives and we're still seeing more cases every day? Well, they're losing their lives everywhere in the world. And maybe that's a question you should ask China. Don't ask me. Ask China that question, okay? When you ask them that question, you may get a very unusual answer. Yes, behind you, please. Sir, why are you saying that to me specifically? I'm telling you, I'm not saying it specifically to anybody. I'm saying it to anybody that would ask a nasty question That's like that. That's not a nasty Please question. Please go ahead. Why does it matter? I know that journalists and especially White House correspondents, you know, as you said, have this sensitivity towards, you know, avoiding becoming part of the story. But this was a moment where Trump seemed to make it personal. So if you could take us into that moment, you know, what was on your mind and, and what went into the decision to follow up? So, you know, especially because both of you are reporters, I'm sure that you've interviewed somebody, you know, who takes a really hard turn after you ask a question and they pivot away from your question and say something that has nothing to do with what you were asking. And for me, you know, as a journalist, no matter who I'm talking to, even if that's the president, if I see that hard shift, I'm going to try to find out why. And I want to bring, you know, the viewer as much context as possible to understand why that turn happened. And so for me, you know, the reason I asked that question to begin with about his mindset about testing, again, was to try to offer some context about the decisions he was making about embracing widespread testing. And I think it's important to note it was the third question I asked of the press conference. And the more time that went on, the more questions that were asked by my colleagues, you know, it really felt like he wanted everybody to know we were number one in the world when it came to testing. There were banners everywhere. It felt like a celebration. And I was just thinking, you know, if I'm sitting at home, I'd be wondering, why is this a time to celebrate? 
Why does it matter if we're number one when people around the country are still losing the fight and we can't get our arms around testing? And this was already months after the start of the pandemic. And so when he told me to ask China, it just didn't make any sense because my question wasn't about China. Now, if my question was about the origin of the virus or you know, what Beijing may or may not have concealed or what consequences China should face. Of course, you know, that would make a little more sense to me if his answer had to do with China. But again, my question had nothing to do with China. And so that's why I had to ask, why are you saying that to me when other people in the press conference had asked many questions that were not related to China And he didn't say that to them. And so when I heard him say that, you know, I I felt it was important to understand why. I will tell you that after that press conference, a lot of colleagues, um, a lot of friends, you know, reached out and they said thank you for asking because they also wanted to know why he made that hard shift uh, away from my question about testing and into the space about China, which of course, you know, he saw my face. I am Chinese American. So I think that context is really important. And I was just trying to provide it. Right. And of course, I think it was really great to see you in that moment, make that point. Let's actually talk about your life growing up in West Virginia, in a Chinese American family. I'm curious, what was the first time you can remember standing up to a bully, for example? Or what was it like even growing growing up in Buckhannon, West Virginia? In Buckhannon, yeah, population less than 6,000. Um, it, was, it was really hard, actually, because there, you know, wasn't another um, Chinese-American student in my school district. Everyone was uh, white, except for, um, I, I think, I can name two or three people. And I didn't realize it until I moved to Buchanan because I had, you know, lived in a bigger town in Morgantown, which is where the university is. So it's a lot more diverse than this particular town. And when I moved there, I was about nine or 10 years old. And I just remember hearing the C word for the first time. And nobody had said that to me, especially to my face. And I just knew it was bad. I mean, it it just sounded, the way it was presented, obviously, was, you know, look at this C word, you should go back to China. And so I was really hurt, obviously, and confused because I hadn't dealt with something like that before. And I think you know, people ask me, where do you, where do you find the strength to hold people in power accountable and to ask tough questions? I think it's things like that, those instances of bullying that never went away <laughs> through my high school years that really taught me how to stand up for myself and how to be proud of who I was, even though nobody else around me was doing that because there was nobody else around me that really experienced that. And so I had to learn for myself. 
And it's not like my parents sat me down and, and had, you know, long conversations about racism. And they were busy. They were working 15 or 17 hours a day just trying to pay the bills and probably not understanding everything I was going through. It's not like I ran home and, and cried and told them. I think culturally that's just not the way many people deal with things. At least I can speak for myself in saying I don't remember having these extensive conversations. And I just had to figure it out on my own. Well, we have a segment that we do with all of our guests, and it's called Bad Asian Confessions. I don't know if, if that sort of immediately gives you a sense of what it is, but we sort of share a time or a thing that made each of us feel like a bad Asian, like we were not a good Asian, and then we unpack it together because the intention is to implode that idea that we all, a lot of us internalize. One of mine that I'm going to share, especially at the end, we we're at the end of our, our first season, and it's been a really, I don't know, beautiful experience for me. So my bad Asian confession is that for most of my life, I didn't feel politically engaged or aware or, you know, necessarily necessarily embracing of being an Asian American and really understanding all of these nuances, all of this pain uh, across the Asian American community that has continued to afflict people in all of these different communities within the Asian American banner. And I really didn't understand how I internalized that pain myself. So that's mine. Um, I'm glad that I, th I actually think that this podcast has helped me sort of begin to do the work of unpacking that. So that's, that's one of mine. It's a serious one. They're not always serious. Uh, Frank, <laughs> do you have one? <laughs> Yeah, I had a serious one too, and my bad Asian confession is is that like, I often, uh, I I basically am not my parents, you know, and I feel like a bad Asian because I'm not my parents and I don't have the habits of my parents, but I'll never be my parents, you know, and so so many of my bad Asian confessions have been things like, I'm wasteful, yeah. I'm lazy, <laughs> I'm not as hardworking, you know, <laughs> and like, those are all true. You know, but I also work hard in, in different ways at different things, you know. And so I guess part of the process of confessing all of these bad Asian confessions has been understanding that it's okay if I'm not like my parents and that the shame I feel at, at not, say, eating out of a Tupperware container, you know, and, and, and instead ordering, you know, Uber Eats or something like that isn't necessary. And, and we're supposed to move on. We're supposed to be different. I don't know if that's <laughs> that counts as a bad Asian <laughs> confession, but um, hopefully that gives you a sense of, of what they're about. Ouija. Do you have one you want to share with us? Um, sure. So, I, uh, you know, on the serious side, I think I, you know, mentioned this before, but when I was a young journalist, I was so worried about appearing to be um, subjective that I wasted, I think, opportunities to really delve into the Asian American communities that I was living in um, and to, to try to showcase more of the plights that, you know, people were going through because I, I didn't want people to view me as, well, she's only concerned about um, the Asian American community. And now that I've been in the business for so many more years, you know, that's um, something I'm really 
regretful about. And I think luckily I was able to see it's not either or early on. And, you know, I'm not just having that reckoning right now. But I think, you know, as journalists, we have such an obligation and such an opportunity to bring to light things that would otherwise just go untold. And so my advice for young journalists is, again, to really appreciate who you are and know that just because you have a focus on your community doesn't mean that you can't be balanced and fair in your reporting. And I guess a less serious one, and this might be TMI, but I recently stopped pumping and nursing my baby and I quickly put on a lot of extra pounds. And so I'm not eating rice and I feel terrible because I grew up eating rice three times a day. And even when we had noodles, I had to have rice with it. And so now um, I'm making beautiful dishes and eating them with lettuce and it just feels wrong. (laughs) Because I, I uh, you know, if I told my parents that and they laugh at me, but um, I guess that's a, you know, a lighter example of, you know, not embracing what I grew up eating every day. Yeah, it doesn't feel like a meal if there's no rice. <laughs> Look, Ouija, rice will always be there for us whenever we're ready to go back to it. It's always there. Did you know manufacturing toilet paper uses nearly 27,000 trees per day? Ouch. Literally, for the planet and your butt. It's time for the Hello Tushy Modern Bidet Attachment. Hello Tushy cleans your bottom with a precise stream of fresh water for just $79. It attaches to your existing toilet, requires no electricity or additional plumbing, and cuts toilet paper use by 80%. So the Hello Tushy Bidet pays for itself in a few months. And every Hello Tushy bidet attachment comes with a 60-day risk-free guarantee and a 12-month warranty. Join millions of happy Hello Tushy customers right now and start eliminating waste responsibly. Go to hellotushy.com enough to get 10% off. This is a special offer for our listeners. Go to hellotushy.com enough for 10% off. hellotushy.com enough. Okay, wow. That's it for season one of our podcast. It's been amazing and revelatory and inspiring and and moving to listen to our guests and listeners share with us and tell us how important this space is to them. And I want to thank everyone for sharing those vulnerable parts of themselves with us and, and being so honest and courageous and vulnerable, even if what you had to say isn't the most precise or diplomatic. You know, I'm really moved that so many people are willing to participate in this space we tried to create. And I'm so grateful. It's been amazing. Thank you. It really, really has. And we would just like to thank you so much for listening and calling in and giving this podcast the life and the reach that it's had. 
because reading your comments, getting your emails, and for those of you who called into our hotline, hearing your bad Asian confessions really made this a beautiful, beautiful experience for us. Thank you again also to the guests who joined us this season to share your stories and bare your souls. John Cho, Lulu Wong, our own LA Times colleague, Samia Carlamangla, Viet Tan Wen, Margaret Cho, Mina Kimes, Jet Tila, Rabia Chowdhury, Nikki Nakayama, Dumbfounded, Dante Bosco, Sung Kang, John M. Chu, Jose Antonio Vargas, Padma Lakshmi, Senator Kamala Harris, Representative Mark Takano, and Weijia Zhang. Asian Enough is hosted by me, Jen Yamato, and by Frank Shong. Our wonderful senior producer is Rena Palta. Our fantastic executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our tireless engineer is Mike Heflin. Our original music was composed by the talented Andrew Epen. And this podcast is, of course, dedicated to the loving, loving memory of Lana Anwar. If you like Asian Enough, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Jeff Berkshire, Reed Johnson, Shelby Grad, and Clint Schaff. And to CBS News for sharing the archival clips you heard in this episode. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. So stay connected and please subscribe because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. And remember, Asian Americans may be so incredibly diverse, but we have at least one thing in common, rice. I'm not eating rice and I feel terrible.